0: Hi, my name is Pauline Park.
1: And my name is Timothy Ahn. Today, we'll be discussing trends in history through the lens of food and drink. We are making this podcast as part of our final project for Korea 180B, History of Korea 1260 through 1876.
0: Now, there is this famous YouTube channel called Namda, where a couple of friends from the UK share Korean culture through food and drink. The channel is a good example of how Korean culture is getting globalized through people learning about it through eating and sharing drinks. Upon researching Korea's food and drink culture, we found that the history of Korean drink culture and distillation practices represents some of the earliest forms of globalization. We explore the transfer of distillation technology from China to Korea during the Mongol period in the 13th century, which is an age that scholars now regard as the first stage of globalization's history. Now, soju is an iconic Korean alcoholic beverage that first developed through exchanges of culture and technology in Europe and Asia. Soju is an ideal object to study from a global historical perspective because it just it suggests that the process of globalization developed in Asia earlier than it did in the West.
1: And similar to soju, globalization has also affected Korean food culture. The changes that globalization has engendered have had massive ramifications that impact both Korea and the Korean diaspora community to this very day. For instance, political changes and shifts in societal norms have changed what ingredients are considered distasteful and what is considered commonplace. Additionally, the question of what foods are considered authentic has become dominant as cuisine has become increasingly seen as a marker of identity. As such, the discourse surrounding food and drink has become a victim of politicization and contention.
0: In order to explore this topic, we'll be exploring research conducted by Hyoni Park and Yuang Rae We used Hyoni Park's book called Soju, A Global History. Park is the Associate Professor of History at City University of New York, John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the CUNY Graduate Center. She centers her work around soju and uses it to weave together hemispheric flows of trade, empire, scientific and technological transfer. We also use research presented by the Journal of Ethnic Foods and Professor Yong Re Um of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. This also includes Aum's article, Authenticity and Representation, Cuisines and Identities in Korean American Diaspora.
1: By focusing on the historical trends insofar as they pertain to the history of Korean food and drink, it is our hope that we can shed light on the importance and value of communicating this research to a general audience. We hope you enjoy.
0: So I will be talking about the history of distilled drinks in Eurasia. Hyundi Park starts her book first with this topic because understanding the development and history of distillation and liquors within Mongolia and Central Asia leading up to the creation of soju is important in understanding the rise of soju in Korea. The reason why ancient people developed distilled alcohols was because they had many practical purposes on top of it being a drink. Back in medieval times, there were texts that showed an interest in distillation because it was good for medicine. Higher alcohol content also preserves drinks for longer, which is very important for hot climates in the Middle East. Then the drinks from the Middle East and parts of Europe have transferred to Asia through trade routes in the Indian Ocean. As drinks and technology were shared across regions, it created a game of telephone where each respective locale created their own innovations in distillation technology. Park talks a lot about Arak, which is a distilled drink that originated in the Middle East. It also was introduced into Asia and the drink grew to become localized in areas for the, further to the East. Eventually, Iraq was found in China, which then went to Korea and Japan. Then the Mongols expanded Iraq's production and consumption. Besides Iraq, the Chinese also produced another drink called xiaoju. The Mongols really liked how the Chinese manufactured the drinks by fermenting grains. And so they developed this technique. This contributed to the spread of this innovation and the popularization of Iraq. This may have also applied to Korea since it came under the influence of the Mongols, so this sets up a historical context to the true development of soju. When studying soju in Korea, we rely on ancient Chinese documents from when the Mongols were dominant over Korea. What they tell us is that the Koreans have been introduced to a variety of alcoholic beverages, mainly through relations within China. Interactions politically, economically, and culturally have introduced Korea to a variety of alcoholic drinks. For example, diplomatic gifts, trade, and religious influences have contributed to the spread of these beverages. Besides beverages, the Chinese food culture transferred to the Koreans in many ways, such as cooking methods and chopsticks. This allowed them to create new modifications to food and drink. In the late Goryeo period, which is around the late 1200s, the Koreans grew to love liquor so much that they created more than 20 varieties. They used rice as the most basic ingredient, so rice became more valuable as the demand for alcohol increased. Alcoholic drinks were so widely consumed and enjoyed by both the elites and the commoners uh, that it was common for people to attend multiple drinking parties in one night. Most liquors from foreign places were exclusive to the elites, but Shaoju and Iraq quickly spread among the ordinary people. Both of these drinks, Iraq especially, were popularized by the Mongols. When they were in control of Korea, the Koreans adopted the drinks and foreign distillation technology. They used them to make unique fermented drinks, making the earliest form of the modern Korean soju. It used rice, but it included a variety of other ingredients, which is different from earlier alcohols that were all based on grain. So soju and Iraq traveled to Korea because of the close political ties with the Mongols. The history of distilled alcohols demonstrates how powerful globalization is, with Korean soju serving as a great example for how it developed. For us, we hardly think about the concept outside of modern times, the technology that we have, but it played a huge role in modern times. Not only did the cultures interlap, but ideas were traded and built upon. Ideas of distilled drinks and the technology to produce them inspired other regions to make their own innovations. As such, innovations in distillation did not grow from one point of origin, but from a variety of cultural backgrounds that each contributed their own spin or take on various ideas.
1: County Park tells of how this cultural exchange described by Pauline not only facilitated the transfer of distilling processes and technologies, but also how it radically altered perceptions and social norms regarding food. First of all, the case study of meat consumption in Koryo shows how the perception of food by a given nation or people group can change dramatically throughout history. Korean food, at least in the American context, has become increasingly popular with one of the most iconic dishes being Korean barbecue. Yet centuries ago, meat would have been both foreign and distasteful to the majority of Korean people. During the Goryeo dynasty, 935 to 1392, the dominant religious tradition was Buddhism. Buddhism is a religion that discourages the consumption of meat. In the Pali Canon, specifically the Vanija Sutta, it lays out restrictions that lay people should follow. Lay people, that is Buddhists outside of the Sangha or monastic order, should refrain from engaging in, quote, business in weapons, business in human beings, business in meat, business in intoxicants, and business in poison, end quote. For our purposes, it is this third restriction, the encouragement to refrain from handling meat that is important to emphasize. This taboo against meat was so widespread that outside observers of Koryo society took notice of it. Xu Jing, a Chinese envoy sent by the Song Emperor Huizong during the early 1100s to Koryo, was one such observer. In the Xuanhe Fengxi Li Tu Jing, or the illustrated account of an official mission to Koryo during the Xuanhe reign, Jing detailed the political system and culture of Koryo from the perspective of an outsider. He recalled that since society deemed meat-eating and the handling of meat to be socially and religiously immoral, the people were not only bad at butchering, but that it was difficult for anyone aside from the high-ranking officials and the king to eat meat. However, when the Mongols defeated the southern Song Dynasty in China in 1276, there was a significant change in attitudes towards meat in Koryo. As Pauline mentioned, the Mongols served as a medium that allowed for cultural exchange to flourish via globalization. One way that this cultural exchange manifested was through the transfer of Mongolian dietary customs to the Korean Peninsula. Hyunee Park writes, quote, The Mongols' meat-eating culture was transferred to Koryo and began to spread across the Korean Peninsula from the Mongol period along with the revival of a hunting culture and an increase of livestock hu- husbandry and the supply of meat even for commoners, end quote. Within a few decades, meat eating had become almost universalized within Korean society. Hao Heung-sik in his Goryo-Bulgyosa 연구, or a study of the history of Koryo Buddhism, asserts that even Buddhist monks were indulging in meat amongst other vices, such as, quote, sexual moral hazards, end quote showing the extent to which meat eating had become normalized. However, the process of globalization also resulted in great amounts of culinary localization. First of all, while the Mongol habit of meat consumption began widespread, the Koryo people began consuming livestock that were more familiar to them. For instance, the Mongols consumed a Central Asian food known as shulun, a type of banquet soup consisting of a lamb broth with a smorgasbord of ingredients that could potentially be added to it. Hu Suhui's *Inshan shan yao, proper and essential things for the emperor's food and drink, uh, or the official dietary manual for the Mongol court in China, detailed how this soup was found in China, but could also be found in other areas with Mongol influence, such as Iran. However, in Korea, Shulan became localized by replacing the lamb with beef, a protein that was more suited to the Korean environment and ultimately became known as Seolongtang, a soup enjoyed even today. What is interesting about shulan is in its origins. Dr. Paul Buell at the University of North Georgia theorized that the shulan soup that would ultimately come to be known as Seolongtang had roots in Turkic communities in Central Asia. Indeed, Korea was becoming connected with communities many miles away. As such, Koryo food culture, society, and politics is revealed as being something that was not immutable. Instead, its very plasticity came as a result of its relationship with the suzerain state and the opportunities for change that globalization afforded. So what is the relevancy of our findings here today? First of all, it is interesting to note that not only does food speak to wider historical trends in society, but as a result of these trends, food also comes with its own contention and politicization. While researching this piece, I found that kimchi is bitterly debated even today with arguments regarding its origin as separate from or having a shared origin with Chinese paocai and Japanese Tsukemono. The fervor with which people rapidly argue for one theory of origin perhaps has much to do with the fact that kimchi is one of Korea's representative foods. This gives credence to the idea that today, food is increasingly conflated with identity. For example, it is hard to separate Koreans from kimchi, the Japanese from sushi, Italians from pizza, and so on and so forth. Food is thus seen as a link to a given nation and a given people. This is especially true with overseas Korean communities. Young Rae-om writes in her, Authenticity and Representation, Cuisines and Identities in Korean American Diaspora, that quote, the very fact that authenticity is a central issue reflects a key characteristic of diaspora, a constant search for identity in relation to the homeland. To that end, food has become a kind of shibboleth that seeks to differentiate and delineate certain communities, customs, and cuisine. The
0: Diaspora community in the US is no different. Hum writes that, quote, authenticity is the holy grail for both the producers and consumers of Korean cuisine in the U.S., end quote. Korean restaurants pride themselves and market themselves as being authentic. Hum tells of Judy Hyun, an American woman who married a Korean-American. Hyun wrote a cookbook that attempted to showcase authentic Korean meals, and she claimed that her recipes were authentic solely because they remained true to Korean ingredients. However, Om um argues that the concept of authenticity is more than the sum of its parts. Even if all of the ingredients of a given meal were the same, this would not in and of itself make a food genuinely authentic because, quote, a cuisine is much more than the combination of a few ingredients, end quote. This brings up an interesting question. What does authenticity truly mean? Lisa helped a professor of philosophy at the Gustavus Adolphus College states that authenticity refers to food that is, quote, different from familiar, prepared the way it would be in its culture of origin and native to the original place, end quote. Yet the research that we presented today shows that if we go back far enough, foods that have been considered to be representative of a country, for example, soju and Korean dishes such as barbecue and seollongtang, are as foreign to Korea as pizza.
1: If we adhere strictly to Helka's definition of authentic, can anything be truly considered authentic? This is certainly not a question that can be answered within the scope of this podcast. And I'm not quite sure if it can be answered at all. But that is not a reason to dismiss or ignore this question. The politicization of food as a marker of identity and the focus on authenticity is something that has become dominant in discussions about food. I'll admit that I myself have looked down on certain restaurants for being inauthentic or fusion Korean food. But maybe that way of thinking is wrong. Maybe authenticity is merely a figment of the imagination and an archaic or at least a myopic way of thinking. In whatever case, hopefully this research prompts us as a society to think more deeply about food and its deeper implications.
0: With that being said, special thanks to UCLA, Professor Wang, and to our groupmates and our classmates in 180B. Thank you all for your feedback and your tips in regards to our project. And thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. It truly means a lot. This was Pauline Park.
1: And Timothy On. Goodbye.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.